Hey, it's Laura. If you're listening to this, you're not hearing the complete unedited version of this conversation. If you want in on that, you can get it by becoming a TMST Plus member. Just head over to our website at tmstpod.com and click support. All right, enjoy the show. Hey there, it's Laura. And today I'm going to introduce you to someone who has a really extraordinary view on how to approach life. He's asking the questions that face every single one of us and he's doing it in a lovely, humble way. Leonard Perlmutter is a meditation teacher, an author, and an inspiration. As you'll hear, he's inviting us to ask What if life is just a long, unfolding experiment? Not all this high-stakes, zero-sum game thing that we do. Just an experiment, and that there's always more freedom waiting for us. In 1996, Leonard found the American Meditation Institute in Albany, New York. And in the years since, they've touched tens of thousands of lives through their classes in meditation, yoga, and integrated health. Leonard's easygoing demeanor floats on top of an incredible rigor. AMI meditation courses have been accredited by several medical associations for continuing medical education credits, and the Institute has grown as a center of excellence. For example, in 2010, the mind-body medicine pioneer, Dr. Bernie Siegel, joined the faculty. Leonard strikes me as someone who is truly living his dharma in a humble, committed, and yet lighthearted way. Throughout this conversation, he would lay out these seemingly too simple nuggets to be picked up, turned around, and considered. He speaks in a way that makes the complicated things clear, and I think you're going to enjoy spending time with him. I did. All right. Enjoy. I'm very excited to talk to you. Uh, Yeah, likewise. Yeah. You're doing a lot of great work. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah, your work is incredibly important to people like me. (laughs) I became a yoga teacher actually about 10 years before I, I quit. And it was my first, it was my entree into pranayama and yoga were my entree into really meeting myself for the first time, it seemed like. I want to start really wide and then work our way in. Can you tell me how it is you came to do what you do and then how you describe what you do? Well, one of my earliest memories was that uh, there were two principles that have guided me in my life. First is philosophy. I've always had a philosophical perspective on just about everything. Not really sure where that came from, but it's comfortable and it's helpful for me. And the other uh, principle that has guided me is practicality. I'm a practical guy. And so 
I'm attracted to uh, a different knowledge, but unless that knowledge, that wisdom has a practical application, I don't give it much attention, much energy. Mm-hmm. So when I was a little little kid, grade school and then going into high school, I was in the scouts. And uh, it was a great way to learn practical tools for living. Yeah. Yeah. And I enjoyed that very much. I remember that I had a, a conversation with my scoutmaster once. And I, I said to him, as we all know, uh, the motto of scouting is be prepared. Be prepared for what? <laughs> and he what looked exactly? at me with this amazing look on his face. And he said, how would I know? Oh, my God. And that's it. You know, how would we know about this COVID situation? How would we know uh, about all, all this tension and uh, anxiety uh, in the political world uh, in which we live? It's, uh, it's uh, you know, a, a grade B script uh, for Hollywood that uh, never would get produced. It's just totally unreasonable. But the, here we are. Here we are. And how do you describe what you do? As you do, you've been doing this a long time. How would you describe what you do today? What I do, and I think it's the same with you, Laura. We both are like modern day Johnny Appleseeds. <laughs> uh, we go around and uh, we have something that we believe is very helpful. It has been helpful for each of us in our own lives physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, and it works. And so we plant seeds in the consciousness of other people uh, with no expectations, no expectations, just, uh, you know, it's just the joy in the planting. And so as Elvis Presley always uh, said, I just love to sing the song. I just love to sing the song. And so I just love to sing this song. Yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I've never thought of myself as a Johnny Appleseed, so thank you for that. (laughs) The message, looking outside ourselves for happiness is a useless pursuit, or said another way, uh, it's always an inside job. Feels like it's never been more widespread, and at the same time, there's this, this big gap between that those statements and what we see in the world. And I don't know that it's any more profound today than it is at a different point in life, but it feels more profound perhaps because Mm -hmm. of what we're going through. Do you feel like we're in a particularly acute point of sort of disconnection? And where do we even start to make a difference with that? Well, I do believe that we are in an intense time of, of change in yoga science this period of time is referred to as Kali Yuga. It's an age of destruction of forms. Referring so to that, Kali, the yes, Hindu goddess. Yeah, yeah. The goddess Kali. And Yuga is, is the time frame in which we live. And it is a time of, of uh, much destruction uh, of existing paradigms. And, and we know, just from our own personal experience, that Creativity begins with destruction. Chaos. So we, we can't even make an omelet without breaking the eggs. Mm-hmm. Uh, a seed has to die in that form in order for the plant to sprout. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and even though change is around us all the time, everything in the material world is sub subject to change. You know, George Harrison uh, uh, sang about the, the idea that all things must pass. Hmm. But human beings become very attached. And, and that's, a lot of that uh, has to do with uh, the animal part of us. We don't even talk about this very much, but uh, human beings are essentially animals. Uh, you know, we have come from the earth, this mind-body-sense complex, and yet we are something other. And what yeah. separates us from uh, the other animals is, is our mind. One of the functions of our mind can actually go outside the current matrix in which we live to the center of consciousness and access superconscious wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind. Uh, that sounds like metaphor or poetry, but it's really the same portion of the mind where Albert Einstein saw mathematical equations and Paul McCartney hears beautiful melodies. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I'm going to become a songwriter. Laura, it doesn't mean that you're going to become a physicist. But it does mean that the more that we can learn to use our conscience as our true guide and quiet the noise and the anarchy coming from the ego, the senses, and the unconscious mind, then the, the conscience can make a choice for us and make a recommendation that will reflect a perfect wisdom so that we can choose the thought to think, the word to speak, and the action to take that will allow each of us to fulfill the purpose of our lives without pain. There's a lot in there. It can sound very metaphysical and woo to say mm -hmm. super conscious and conscience and things like that. How, what is the most practical way you've learned to explain the ability to tap into universal wisdom, as you just said? The most practical method that I have uh, experienced is the scientific method of experimentation, mm, trial more. and error. Uh, let uh, Thomas Edison be uh, our inspiration. Uh, even, even a failure to Thomas Edison was not a failure. It was just an opportunity for a mid-course correction. And so the real challenge that every human being faces, as far as I understand, is the mind. And yet, mm -hmm. even though the mind is our biggest challenge, it is our biggest opportunity so we, we've never been taught how to use the mind properly. It's so interesting. If you think back about any level of schooling that you've had, this is my experience. The only thing that we've been asked to do is to memorize something and then be able to recite it, uh, for example, like during an examination. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and if we, if we get a correct number of uh, answers that are appropriate, We'll pass the exam, right. we'll get a degree eventually, and we'll be able to get a better paying job. Right. And that's it. End of story. End of responsibility for the uh, educational system. But that's far from enough. What we need to do is we, we need to, yes, receive knowledge and assimilate knowledge, but then we have to take an action. We have to base our outer action on our own inner wisdom, on right. our own inner wisdom, just for the sake of an experiment. 
Yeah. And that means to coordinate and parent the limited, often faulty perceptions of the ego, the senses, and the unconscious mind. You see, all three of those have only limited per perceptions and perspectives. Yep. They're often wrong, but they're never in doubt. And ego, senses, and unconscious mind are loud, and they're pushy, and they're insistent, and they create a tremendous amount of noise. Yeah. Well, we think that's who we are. That is- That's right. I- even in school, I, you know, I don't remember being told anything like, you are not actually these thoughts that you have. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. So that's- that's the kind of observing I think you're talking about. Yeah. And when, when we can become detached from our thoughts, which are our most powerful resource, what happens? We create a space between stimulus and response, mm-hmm. which is exactly opposite what the culture is teaching us today with this whole strange concept of multitasking, which is totally impossible for a human being to do. Yeah, right. right? Wow. Productivity, yes. Yeah, it's about productivity. It's about consumerism. But if we can create a space, if we can slow down and create a space between stimulus and response, in that space between stimulus and response is our freedom of choice, our freedom of choice. And that provides us the opportunity to redirect our attention to our conscience, ask the conscience to reflect superconscious wisdom into our conscious mind and then parent the ego senses and unconscious mind for the sake of an experiment to try it. I like how you say experiment. Yeah. Because we're I, just trying. That's right. And it's not forever. An experiment is not forever. Uh-huh. That's right. And and you can still wear your doubting Thomas hat. <laughs> yeah. You see? You can fake it until you make it. Right. Mm-hmm. You don't have to have blind faith. Try it. See how it feels. My experience is my ego, my senses, my unconscious mind tell me that uh, they enjoyed the experiments more so than they thought they would. Yes, say more. So I I would imagine there was an inciting incident or maybe multiple incidents in your life where you hit the limit of your conscious, hit the limit of your mind. And you, I I always found pain as like the entry point. Like this, Mm -hmm. this isn't working. I'm at the end of my, all the coping mechanisms that I have aren't working. And so was there an inciting moment for you, event, something in your life that unlocked this experimentation, this idea? Yes. Yes. I I think just generally speaking first, I've always had an allergic reaction to pain. (laughs) (laughs) You're not the only one. Yeah. Nobody likes it. Right. Right. So uh, that's number one. But number two, uh, I was raised in a, in a Jewish family uh, and a very loving, uh, wonderful family. And one thing that was very important in this family, this is sort of a stereotypical Jewish family uh, at the time that I grew up, at least. Food was very, very important. Mm-hmm. And the more food that you ate, mama 
my mother, she would smile a lot. So yeah. that motivated the child to eat even more. And so, gosh, I was experiencing a tremendous amount of pain, a tremendous amount of pain because of the food that I was eating. Physically. Physically. Yeah. Right. And of course, uh, uh, mentally, I, I was in pain also because I couldn't think of anything else because uh, of the pain that was, that was in my gut. Yep. And so I began to experiment. That's what led me to uh, Ayurveda mm -hmm. and the uh, science of yoga. And I began making different food choices. And I tell people, uh, and I, I, I would tell your listeners the same thing, that if I had the same mental software that I had when I was 14, and everybody remembers about approximately when they were 14, that's when <laughs> that was the crown of creation. That's when we knew everything about everything. You're the first person to ever feel a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> but if yeah. I if I had that same software package today in place in my mind, one of two things would be true. Either I would have died a long time ago, or I would be in the hospital very sick. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean? Well, through my experimentation process, I no longer eat the food that the ego senses and unconscious mind have loved. Mm. Mm -hmm. Instead, now I choose food that loves me, that loves my ego senses and unconscious mind, but also my brain, my eyes, my ears, my heart, my lungs, my joints, my muscles. Mm -hmm. That's such a tangible example. You know, it doesn't have to be this catastrophic, extraordinary pain moment. I mean, that is painful, but it doesn't have to be like I, I, you know, going through an addiction or a divorce or a death. I guess what I'm, what I'm trying to say is the signals that we get about what works for us, what works for our capital S self, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. We're getting that information all the time. Right. So that's why it's critically important that we listen to the whisper of pain. Because if we don't listen to the whisper of pain and make a mid-course correction, then the decibel level of the pain is simply going to get louder and louder and louder and louder mm -hmm. until a dis-ease turns into a disease. Mm -hmm. Right. So why not just heed the lesson of pain at a low decibel level and make a mid-course correction? Uh, in that regard... I think about Neil Armstrong in this little tiny uh, lunar lander uh, going to the moon, mm -hmm. the first human being on the moon. And he, he was riding this uh, little, little craft. It was probably like a, a, a large garbage can. It, it wasn't very big. Right. But on his way from the mothership uh, down, hurtling down toward the uh, surface uh, of the moon, there were all these onboard computers that were that were, were reading all sorts of telemetry, and th and that information then was radioed immediately back to Houston to the Space Command Center, and they had these huge supercomputers at the time, running them through these programs and sending Armstrong back information 
to direct him how to fire his retro rocket rockets yeah. in a certain sequence for certain lengths of time so he could have a safe landing. So are you saying that that information, that kind of information is available to us all the time? 24-7. And is the tool, the, the mechanism meditation? Yes. Why do people resist meditation so much? I'm talking about myself included too. For I, I finally, after God, years, and I have my theories, I didn't really want to be with myself. It felt stupid and boring and frustrating and, you know, whatever. But why do people avoid it? Why do we avoid it so much? Well, there really is very little reinforcement. There is more reinforcement today than 10 or 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's still very, very little reinforcement for meditation and the value of meditation in our culture. What, we, so oh, yeah. when, when people uh, try to uh, take on something new, they project their preconceptions. You know, Epictetes in the first century uh, AD said something that was important. He uh, said something to the effect that we don't really see the world we see what we think about the world. Right. Mm -hmm. That's why Shakespeare says, there's nothing either good or bad, just thinking makes it so. Mm -hmm. And so like with meditation, the, the unconscious mind and the reptilian brain are, are working overtime because any kind of change that we're not aware of creates fear right. and anxiety. Right. Mm -hmm. And that ramps up you know, the what if situation, what if this should happen? What if that should happen? What if neither happens? And then we hallucinate about what, you know, what's the worst kind of scenario that could happen. And so that dissuades us from uh, meditating. But if the truth be known, we, we engage in the meditation process many, many, many times every day. And some of them are very enjoyable. Ooh, uh -huh. explain that. Well, if I'm eating an ice cream cone and all my mental energy is focused on that one object, I'm not even there anymore. It's just this joy. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm reading a fantastic book or having a sexual relationship mm -hmm. or watching a great movie, mm -hmm all of my mental energy automatically is coming down to one point. That's why I say I love those experiences. The, the ego attributes my joy and my happiness to the object, but that's not true. It's really a function of how the mind is focused toward only one object. Mm. And we don't need the movie. We don't need the book. We don't need that particular sexual relationship to bring me the joy and the fullness. I have it within me if I can just quiet the mind, go within, seek within, and find that joy and that fullness within. And that's okay. the practice of meditation. That's a fascinating way to put it. I've literally never heard it talked about that way. And of course, my I'm thinking, yeah. <laughs> I love ice cream and eating an ice cream cone can definitely bring me into pure focus and just enjoyment mm -hmm. of the moment. Right. That's right. But 
there's a very big difference to me between the uncomfortableness of sitting in meditation, which is how I find it to be much of the time. Why is it uncomfortable? Because we have these distracting thoughts that come. Mm -hmm. And you you can't make that go away, and you're not supposed to try to make that go away. Well, you see, that's the habit of the mind. We, going in, we have to understand that meditation includes the fact that the mind is going to go away mm-hmm. from the object of my attention. Whether mm-hmm. it's a mantra or the breath, the mind is going to want to change the channel. That's what it does for a living. No matter what. It has never right. been cha- trained to do otherwise. So we have to be very compassionate for that limitation of our mind. And we have to parent it. And so when the mind wants to run off, we're not upset. We're not angry. We don't think we're a failure. We don't think that this quote unquote meditation process doesn't work. We simply honor the distraction, witness it, offer it back to the origin from which it came, bring the mind back to the prescribed object, be it the mantra or the breath. Mm-hmm. And we might be doing that over and over and over again, but slowly, 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 if we don't ask the mind to meditate for too long a period, don't start with 20 minutes, start with 60 seconds. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Give the ego, give the unconscious mind a good experience. So, in that 60 second period, there will be sometimes where all you're aware of is the mantra or the breath. Yes, there will be these distractions, but over a period of time, more and more, it becomes relaxing and joyful rather than stressful. What's the starting point you recommend for people in meditation? You just said 60 seconds, but what else? What is, what's the instruction? Well, really, I, I think that uh, there is instruction before meditation. Meditation, of course, we want to learn to meditate, and we will learn to meditate, but there are preliminaries that can really enhance the, the uh, process. Uh, right. So w- one is the breath, because it's a very interesting, because the breath and the mind are inextricably linked. Mm-hmm. Right? We know that if, if uh, the mind gets upset, oh, it upsets the breath. The, the breath becomes jerky. There's pauses. We hold our breath in, in certain kinds of situations, or the breath becomes very shallow. Mm-hmm. But it works the other way, too. We can't just will the mind to calm down. But if we calm the breath, make it smooth and even, without jerks, without pauses, all breathing through the nostrils, Mm -hmm. diaphragmatically using the belly, allowing the vagus nerve to be stimulated, to turn off uh, that cascade of of hormones surging in the fight-flight-freeze reaction. Then as the breath calms down, it automatically calms down the mind. And a calm, even mind is more willing to experiment with meditation. I thought I was resisting meditation for for 10 or more years. Uh, Mm -hmm. I I practiced yoga. That was my way in because I was thinking, oh, great. 
I love the way my my body, I feel so good. My, it's such a good workout and I love the way my body feels. But I didn't realize for several years that I was actually learning how to breathe and mm-hmm. that the breath was what actually made me feel so much better after right. doing yoga. Yes. So can you talk about the the physiological changes that we can manage and regulate with breath? So we have to start with uh, one fact, and that is that the mind and the body are one entity. Change one changes the other. Mm -hmm. So if we can learn to calm the breath, make it smooth and even without jerks, pauses, or sounds, breathing diaphragmatically, the belly swells, the belly contracts, If we can calm the mind, that slows down the thinking process. Right. And that means that in the consciousness of the physiology, there is similarly a similar reaction. And that calms down. And as our meditation practice deepens, slowly, slowly, we're able to transcend the thinking process for a period of time. And there is more stillness. And that is equated with what's going on in the physiology. And so as the mind calms down, transcending the thinking process slowly, slowly, the same kind of reaction occurs in the consciousness of the physiology. And that brings us to a point of equanimity, stillness, and homeostasis, that balance. Because the, the body wants to be healthy. What causes all this, these problems for the body? The mind. And, and all these lifestyle choices based on all these thoughts, desires, emotions, many of which are not helpful, but nobody has taught us how to make choices based on the best available wisdom, namely our conscience. Hi, I'm Michael. I'm the executive producer of Tell Me Something True, and I co-created the show with Laura. We built TMST and our online community with the hope of creating a sane spot on the internet. We're really passionate about the ad-free nature of this work. Our belief is that this project will work best if we're not hustling to keep advertisers happy, and we keep our attention on you, the TMST community. This is where you can play a major role. TMST Plus is the membership group that helps to keep this podcast going. Whether it's through a monthly membership or a one-time contribution, TMST Plus members are vital to this experiment. As a TMST Plus member, you get to join Laura for member-only events, send in questions for the guests, hear the complete unedited interviews, and connect with other TMST community members. You know, sometimes we feel like we can't make a difference in the world. With a TMST Plus membership, 
you can be keeping this space alive and thriving for a one-time gift or for as little as 10 bucks a month. You can find the link in the show description. And then please head over to tmstpod.com right now to support the show. And thanks. I want to switch gears a little bit here. I love the way you talk about karma. Uh-huh. I think karma is one of those concepts that we maybe have heard of, but it sounds very woo or punishing <laughs> <laughs> or it's it's unclear. Can you talk about it? Sure. Let's look at the law of karma. The law of karma states very simply that thoughts lead to action. And that action can take the form of of words or deeds. And every action that we take, whether it's speech or action, brings about a consequence that can take us in one direction or another. So I always like to start at the end of the story and work my way back. Mm -hmm. Great. So if thought leads to action and action leads to consequence, I concentrate on the consequence. What is the consequence in every relationship that I want to experience? Mm. Well, I want to be happy. Okay. And I want to be secure. Okay. And I want the body and the mind to be healthy. Okay. That's great. That's a, that's a wonderful ideal. That's great. Okay. What's going to get you to point B from point A? Well, you need a business plan. You need a philosophy of life. So what is it that causes those kinds of consequences of happiness, health, and security? Well, if you trace it back, it goes from the consequence back through the actions to the thoughts. Oh, that's the power of the thoughts. If I can think certain thoughts and then serve only those thoughts that motivate actions, whether it's speech or deeds, that will bring me the health, happiness, and security that I deeply desire, that's the ticket. That's the key. And those other thoughts, like fear or anger or egocentric or sensual desires that conflict with my inner wisdom, what am I going to do with those? Well, if I can sacrifice them back to the origin from which they came, the act of sacrificing these thoughts will automatically transform that contractive, poisonous energy into an expansive, creative energy that will enable me to fulfill the purpose of my life. So I'm a winner either way. Talk about the sacrificing, because I think there's all kinds of misdeeds created in the name of sacrificing. It can take on an almost uh, puritanical vibe that isn't particularly helpful, I don't think. Um, And I know that's not what you're saying, but I want you to clarify that. Well, that's good, because it needs clarification, especially in this culture. That's right. Because in our culture, the culture has hijacked many, many words 
in, in our vocabulary, many words. And we have to understand that. And sacrifice is a, is a major word that has been colored by the culture yeah. in a negative way. Right. Somehow it always means denial. I'm denying something of myself mm-hmm. and it's, and it's unreasonable. Okay. So let's go back to the Latin. I was wondering, I'm thinking what's the entomology of sacrifice? Yeah, I've never sacrifice? looked at that. Where does that come from? It comes from the Latin and then, and then the Italian sacrifice, make it sacred. Wow. I sacrifice, make it sacred. Okay. What does that mean? Make it sacred. Well, what is fear? What is anger? What is self-willed desire that conflicts with my inner wisdom? It's energy. Mm. It's energy. That's all. Right? It's energy. But it's a different form of energy. It's not like love. If I were to describe love with the palm of my hand, I I would have an uh, open, outstretched hand. But if I were to demonstrate with my hand anger or fear, it would be like this in a clenched fist. Yeah? But it's just energy, right? And what did we learn in fifth grade, fourth grade? Energy can't be created, can't be destroyed, but it can be transformed. We know from our own personal experience, we can transform ice into water and water into steam. Well, why not transform the poisonous energy of fear and anger and selfish desire? into strategic reserves of healing energy, an increase in my willpower, and an expansion of my creativity. Why not? Well, sacrifice making these certain thoughts that our conscience tells us through this superconscious wisdom is not to be served now in this present moment because it will not bring the consequence that we desire. It'll bring pain instead. But if I can sacrifice it, if I can make it sacred by offering it back to the origin from which it came, there's only one origin of all. You know, some people call it G-O-D. That's a concept. (laughs) G-O-D. That's only a concept. Lots of different synonyms for G-O-D. But the But the idea is one and the same. There is a supreme intelligence that originates everything. Everything has come from the one, right? It's just like mathematics. Every number is really one, right? There is no three. Three is just a concept indicating that one has appeared three times. So if I can sacrifice, if I can make that fear, that anger, that selfish desire that conflicts with my inner wisdom, if I can offer it back to the origin from which it came, it will automatically be transformed into strategic reserves of a healing energy, increase in willpower, and an increase in my access to the superconscious portion of the mind. And I can use that potential energy anytime I I need it when I have a challenging relationship in front of me. Okay. How can you give a practical example of what this might look like in a difficult situation? Because where my mind goes is it's 
this is knowledge that you're giving us. It's wisdom, but it feel it's until you have had an experience of this, until it becomes an embodied experience, it's really just information. And it can be used, I think, and is often used as a spiritual bypassing. Like, I don't feel anger. I don't, I, I, it's a, it's no, a. No, no, no. I'm not saying I don't feel it. I'm just you saying. You have to honor it and witness it for what it is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, and then so, recognize that your job in every relationship is simply to follow inner wisdom. Your purpose and your work in life in every relationship is to be an instrument of that wisdom that is within you, that is you. And if your inner wisdom through the conscience is telling you to sacrifice this particular thought because it will not lead to happiness, security, and health for the sake of an experiment, try it. And then stand back as an objective observer the doubting Thomas, and ask yourself, how do you really feel physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually? My experience is I have felt better. And that just has encouraged me to experiment with more habits that are stored in my unconscious mind that I have picked up from my mother or my father or my grandmother or my grandfather or kids I went to school with, or teachers, or celebrities, or politicians. Mm-hmm. But they're faulty. But they're, I'm carrying them still in my hard drive, all wherever I go. And whenever my emotional buttons are pushed, those faulty concepts are the ones I go to. And every time I use them, I'm in pain. Right. So why not experiment? It's not forever. It's just an experiment and see how you feel. If, if, you, if you don't feel better, I say, try something else. Join a bowling league, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. do whatever, you know, yeah. whatever you think. I, I so hear what you're saying. I want to try, try to get as granular as possible so that it becomes something that's real for people. Can you give an example, like a specific thought one might have? maybe that you've had yourself or a situation or one of the students you've worked with and what it actually looks like to sacrifice it in the moment. I think, and and to listen to the wisdom within, how do we know the difference between the wisdom within and what our mind is telling us? Oh, that's an excellent question because especially the ego is a master ventriloquist. (laughs) Yes. Oh, I know. All kinds and, of proof. And, and, and the ego uh, has all these disguises to look like and sound like the conscience. Mm-hmm. Or even the supreme intelligence uh, itself. The ego, uh, uh, it's, it's the word of God. So let's say we just had a big dinner with dessert and all. And then the, the question becomes, are we going to brush our teeth? So what I do is I call a meeting, immediately call a meeting because I, I can, I know I already hear the grumblings in the mind, right? Because I, I'm the parent of the mind. So I, I know what the kids are already saying. They're not saying it to me. They're saying it amongst themselves, but I, I can hear that. 
So I call a meeting in the kitchen, around the kitchen table. I have the, I have the ego, I have the senses, I have the unconscious mind, and I have the conscience. I'm the parent. And I say, okay, we just had dinner. It was, it was great, a lovely dessert. Are we going to brush the teeth? Then I call on the ego. I call on each one individually because I want each one to be received. I want to be open because the ego's not always wrong. Mm-hmm. You and I, Laura, we both need a, a healthy ego right now to have a conversation and, and make sense in that conversation right. or to drive an automobile or a truck. We need a healthy ego. So the ego's not always wrong. Neither are the senses nor the unconscious mind. So I want to hear, what do you have to say, ego, about brushing the teeth? And immediately the, the ego is going to say, I vote against it. Uh, it sounds very unpleasant. I think it's a, a bad idea. And uh, besides, I always equate change with some form of death. And so uh, I don't want to give up control, so I vote no. I, so I say, well, thank you very much. Now, please sit back down in the chair. Quiet now. I'm going to call on the senses. Senses, what, what's your perspective? Well, the senses says something to the effect that uh, I, I have to vote no. I have to vote no uh, for the uh, brushing of the teeth because, you know, I enjoyed the meal, but uh, the dessert was fabulous. The dessert was absolutely fabulous. We had apple pie tonight, as you already know, and that's my favorite. So I vote no for the brushing of the teeth, but I vote yes for a second slice of apple pie. Okay, well, thank you, senses. Please sit down. And then I call on the unconscious mind, and the unconscious mind might say something, well, I, I'm, I'm going to vote with uh, the ego and the senses. We often vote together like a block, a voting block, and that's, that's my habit. <laughs> okay, well, thank you very much. Now I want all three of you to be quiet and listen. I'm going to call on the conscience. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to ask the conscience to reflect superconscious wisdom from the superconscious portion of the mind, and then share that perspective. Conscience. And the conscience might get up and say, well, we all know this life is not really a sprint. It's more like a marathon. And in a marathon, we need healthy, strong teeth and healthy, strong gums and a healthy, strong immune system. And if we can just take a two-minute time out and brush the teeth, that will go a long way to serve us, to assure that we have healthy, strong teeth, gums, and immune system. Then I, as the parent, knowing ahead of time that I have chosen this experiment because it's relatively easy, it's sort of a no-brainer, mm-hmm. I convince the ego, the senses, and the unconscious mind for the sake of an experiment, and I, and I reinforce that it's only ex- an experiment. This is not a, a lifetime commitment. We're going to try it out and see how it feels. So we all go in, we brush the teeth, we come back, and then I call on each one again. Ego, what did you experience? Wasn't so bad, the ego says. Wasn't so bad. And I didn't die. I'm still here. <laughs> Wasn't so bad. Okay, thank you. Senses, how about you? 
Well, I have to agree with the ego, the sensei say. I thought it was, it was going to be very disappointing because I wanted another slice of apple pie. But when the tongue started gliding over my front teeth and there was no moss on it, none of that mossy feeling that I really dislike, it was rather pleasant. Thank you. Unconscious mind, what do you say? Wasn't so bad. Wasn't so bad. Okay, so what, what, what have I done as the parent? I've created a sense of trust on a very small myopic level now. The ego, the senses, and the unconscious mind now through this easy no-brainer of an experiment, and that's what we should start with. Start with what's easy. It'll be right. They trust me more and they trust the conscience more. Mm. The conscience is not going to steal away their control. The conscience is not going to obliterate them. So they're no more. They're still here. And they had a fairly pleasant experience. So as a smart parent, I have to look for experiments that are relatively easy that I can convince the ego, the senses, and the unconscious mind to expand their consciousness, expand their perspective. That's my job. And the more that I can do that, I create new healthy habits and I change old unhealthy habits. I love that because it's so easy to get. It's got to be easy. I'll tell you one thing. I'll tell you which function of the mind is going to lobby for difficult and challenging, and that's the ego. Oh, yeah. Don't meditate. Let's not meditate for 60 seconds. Let's go for an hour. Why? Because it's a prescription for failure. <laughs> I've noticed that you've said in relationship to refer to any situation, and I assume that means because we're always in relationship. We're always whether, in relationship. It, whether it's to food, the food, the drink I'm having right now, or to the conversation we're having, the That's environment. Right. All, li all life is relationship. And I love that you keep em emphasizing experiment too, because it's like, there is no, we're not trying to be good. No. We're just trying to participate in this conversation in a conscious way. Maybe. And a skillful way. A skillful way. <laughs> right. To ultimately get what it is we want, what we, what we need, what we, what we need, <laughs> what we want might be a different, well, That's if you ask, right. if you ask your, your conscience, conscience, what it wants, it would have a pretty good answer. Uh, it would have a healthy answer, but most of the time what we hear about what we want. No, is I don't what? think that the conscience has an agenda. I think that the mm. conscience is simply a pass through. It's like a TV. Huh. It's, it takes these uh, uh, radio waves from far away. And then on the screen, you, you see a picture. And so uh, the conscience can discriminate, determine, judge, and decide, but it's just a pass-through. It has the capacity to decide, and if the ego senses and unconscious mind are still unruly, it'll just rubber stamp the loudest voice. Mm. That means that every choice we have ever made has always been made by the conscience. It's the only function of the mind that can, that can decide. Ego senses and unconscious mind are only advisors. They're only advisors. And if they create such a mess and such such noise in the in the mind, the conscience will not be able to reflect superconscious wisdom. It will only be able to rubber stamp the loudest voice. Got it. 
what have you learned that people actually want? Because uh, I don't think it's happiness. I mean, I think they, sure, they want to be happy. But happiness is like, eh, it goes all over the place. Well, every, every, every word is, is colored by the, by the uh, culture. So happiness is one of those words. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Agree. But just for the sake of argument, if in every circumstance and every relationship, when you take an action that brings about a consequence, if you could be happy, if you could be content, if you could uh, be secure mm -hmm. and healthy, that would be a pretty darn good start. <laughs> yeah. Point taken. I'm not saying you're confused about the, the, the word happiness. I think the way you mean it is the, is in the deep sense of, you know, a, a sense of peace. Yes. And, and in the process, you begin to understand who you really are, that even though you have a body, you're not the body, even though you have a mind and these thoughts and desires and emotions, you are not the mind. You are not the thoughts. You are not the desires. You are not the emotions, but you are, you are, you are eternal. You're an eternal being, not subject to change, death, decay, or decomposition. And you are also consciousness itself, the background of all reality. Mm -hmm. And within consciousness resides an intuitive library of wisdom, the superconscious portion of the mind. And consciousness itself, the characteristics of consciousness, is bliss and fullness. Mm -hmm. So we are eternally conscious, eternal consciousness, wisdom, and bliss, having a human experience through a mind-body-sense complex. That means that we are citizens of two worlds. And the purpose of life is to unite the two worlds, to unite the two worlds, to base our outer action in the world on our own inner wisdom. And the more that we can do that, we diminish the conflict in the mind. If we diminish the conflict in the mind, it diminishes the conflict in the body and in interpersonal relationships. On the other hand, if we maintain conflict in the mind between outer action and inner wisdom, there is conflict. That inner conflict becomes the mother of all problems. I imagine you encounter a lot of skepticism or have in, in the work that you do. How do you keep going with that? Well, I, I, as I mentioned in the very beginning, I'm Johnny Appleseed. Yeah. So I, I plant seeds. I know the value from my own personal experience. If people uh, push back, it only means that they're just not ready to do the work. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. Right. Everybody's got to uh, come to their own decision. I'm not out to uh, change the world. I'm out to purify my own instrument so mm. I can see clearer and I can make better choices. In the process, if I can share with other people, that's great. Yeah. I enjoy that because I know the profound changes it has made in me. That's beautiful. The mastering your own instrument ending the conversation with where we are today in this cultural moment. How do you think about it? I think it's a golden opportunity. Mm. I think it's a golden opportunity. It's sort of like we're in a, uh, 
a race and, and the baton has just been passed to us. What is the work of art that you and I are going to create? Are we going to be living someone else's life? Or are we going to be living our life? Are we going to be true to ourselves? Are we just going to become a, uh, a carbon copy of my mother or my father or my grandmother or my grandfather or the culture? Not that they're malicious and not that they're always wrong, but in this type of a, an endeavor, you stop blindly becoming a herd animal. Yeah. Trying to tuck yourself into the center of the culture. Sometimes that can be valuable. Sometimes it can be destructive. We have to know the difference. And the only way to know it is, you know, to thine own self be true, as Shakespeare talks about, is to honor your inner wisdom and serve it in every relationship, in mind, action, and speech, and just see what happens. That's why I tell people, yeah. like from a, from a conversation like today, don't believe a word I have said. <laughs> be a critical thinker like the buddha said don't believe that's me. right <laughs> don't believe me if you have any interest experiment for yourself transform your entire mind body sense complex into a laboratory and experiment with every thought with every desire with every emotion and just see what happens i love that that seems like a as good a place of any to end. Thank you, dear or sir. Or to begin. Or yeah. to begin. Or to begin. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was great. Thank you. Pleasure. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today. If you want more TMST, head on over to tmstpod.com and become a member. Members get access to the full uncut versions of these conversations, previews of upcoming guests, invites to join me for members-only events, and access to our members-only community where I hang out a lot, especially now that I'm not on social media. We decided from the beginning to make this an independent project. We don't have sponsors and we don't run ads. This means that we can make the show all about you and not what our sponsors or advertisers want. But it also means we're 100% reliant on your support. So my request and my invitation is simple. Support the show by becoming a member, or you can simply make a one-time donation of as little as $5. I cannot stress this enough. You can make a huge difference for as little as $5. Please head over to tmstpod.com right now. Tell Me Something True is engineered and mixed by Paul Chufo. Michael Elsesser and I dreamed up this show, and we're looking forward to joining you online and next time on Tell Me Something True. Mm-hmm.